as always, it's so good to be with you, and you truly fill my heart with joy every time we gather together to celebrate the Holy Mass. This evening's story in the Gospel of Matthew is what could best be described as a substantial story because it's also listed and recorded in two of the other Gospels, being the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. A little precursor to the reading tonight. It was a tough week for Jesus. He'd had a tough week. In fact, uh, it would be his last one on earth. His, this was it. It was almost over with him. And in just two short days, he would be hung upon a cross where he would suffer and die for you and me. And he knew that. He was painfully aware of what he was about to do for our sake. And if that were not enough on your plate, there were those in Jerusalem who were still continuing, attempting to set him up and box him in in order to discredit him. And before the sun was set on the next day, Jesus would be approached by some of the best debaters, or I call them spin doctors or spinsters, you might call them, uh, within four various religious and political groups, the best of the best. And what they would do is they would ask him loaded questions so that whatever his response was, somebody was not going to like it and, he was and they would turn against him. Or at least that's what they thought. You really can't box in Jesus. I don't think anybody's ever boxed him in or ever will. That's just not possible. Human mind is just too simple uh, to, do, to be able to do something like that. Now, the two groups that are mentioned specifically are the Herodians and the Pharisees in today's readings. And it's very interesting. The Herodians, you've heard of King Herod, haven't you? He was sort of like one of the puppet governors for the Roman emperor. And um, so... Herodians were, of course, they were staunch pro-Roman. That's what they were. They were politicians who were very pro-Roman. And then the Pharisees, we hear more about them in the scriptures, they were as equally zealous as well, but they were anti-Roman politicians. And we are told that the two groups, they disliked each other so much that when they saw the other one coming down the road, they would go across the street and they would have nothing to do with them. Um, see, here was the problem. Here's why they showed up together. Jesus was winning the hearts of the people. He was winning the hearts of the people. The people were beginning to feel a sense of freedom and liberation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what it was doing, it was upsetting power bases. You know, people like personal power, and it was upsetting the Herodians' power base and also the Pharisees, uh, their power base as well. So in true spinster kind of fashion, they approach Jesus now with the intent of buttering him up. They want to uh, sort of butter him up, and you can hear it in the words that they say to him, flatter him, you might call it, in order to catch him off guard. And as soon as they butter him up, they're going to ask him a question. It's sort of like going in for the kill. That's exactly what they were doing. And uh, 
We even see some of that today, don't we, in some of the uh, political arenas that were, uh, as we watched them on television today. What did they say? Jesus, you're a truthful man who teaches the way of God in accordance with the truth. And then with a big smile on their face, they said, tell us, is it right for Jews to pay the 2% census tax or to the Caesar, or is it not? Wow. Now, don't ever try to box Jesus in. Let me tell you, there's no way you can do that. He looks at them, he sa it says, with eyes that could pierce the hardest, eyes that could pierce the most prideful of hearts, and he responds by calling them a bunch of hypocrites. He says, you are a bunch of hypocrites because their concern had nothing to do with the question. Their concern had nothing to do with the people, and it had everything to do with building and maintaining their personal power agenda. That's what they were after. And so Jesus knew that automatically. Here's what really amazes me about this situation, though. Jesus could have shut this political debate down, and we see this happening today, too. Uh, very simply, he could have done it easily because all he had to say is, I have no comment on this matter because I'm from Galilee and I'm not re required to pay this tax. He, you know, he wasn't from uh, in the Ju Jerusalem, the Judea area. He wasn't required, but instead he keeps going forward. And what he does is he turns it into a teachable moment. We know, we absolutely know that the fact that he would continue on with it meant that there were, he recognized, he could sense people in the crowd who were genuinely interested in what he had to say. And Jesus, he never called sincere people hypocrites. He never, never did that. But it was always when his response to somebody with a sincere heart was a totally different response than one who had an agenda. So Jesus' response was this. Give to Caesars what is Caesars and give to God what belongs to God. They were dumbfounded. <laughs> you know, here are these two groups. Here's pro-Roman, pro anti-Roman. So, you know, who, whichever way he responded with the tax, one wasn't going to like it. I mean, it was a total setup. But it says they were so dumbfounded with his response that each group went away in silence and they never approached him again in public. Uh, even the greatest spinsters in all these groups could not spin the right way on Jesus. So what I want us to do in our remaining moments is to take a few minutes to look at how the church has interpreted this very important instruction on how we as Christians are to live our lives in the civic life and look at it as it has been interpreted down throughout the centuries. Well, in typical homily fashion, there's three points, I'll tell you that, okay? So when you get to number three, you know it's almost over. The first point is this. Our highest obligation is to give our lives to our maker. Our maker. Go back to the first chapter of Genesis, and what do you read? And it's so connected to what Jesus is saying. God created us, what? In his image. 
didn't he? Whose image is on the coin? Whose image is on your heart? See, not Caesar's. It's God that's on your heart. And so what that means is that our highest obligation in life, and one that is imposed by natural cause on every man, woman, and child, regardless of their nationality or their citizenship, is to give yourself back to your maker. I like how St. Jerome put it. He said, you must give Caesar the coin which bears his likeness, but yet you give yourself, Christian, heart, mind, and soul to God because it is his likeness. See, God is stamped on you. You are stamped by God. You're in his image. And it is not Caesar's image, he says, that you bear. God's image is stamped into every breathing, living being, including Caesar. God's image. See? And so, so even more important, as we see here, as Jesus is saying, even more important than our civic responsibility is that everyone, including Caesar, has to give himself back to God because he is our maker. And St. Jerome says this is the highest duty incumbent on all of us. The second thing is that our highest allegiance is to God. Now, it's very true that we have a duty to respect civil authority. Absolutely. And the prime passage on that is 13th chapter of Romans, the first seven verses. If you want to see about that, Paul writes about it extensively in those. He's very clear on our civic responsibility. But in the catechism, we are taught that submission to authority and co-responsibility for the common good is the right thing to do. Uh, we are taught also of our moral obligation to pay taxes, I'm sorry about that, exercise the right to vote and to defend our country. But the church makes it perfectly clear, as do the scriptures, that a balanced approach to a civic life must be maintained. And whenever civil authority oversteps its bounds or imposes laws that are contrary to moral law, our allegiance must stay with who? God. We stay with God. We stay on God's side. What, is it, what does the catechisms teach us? The citizen is obliged in conscience not to follow the direction of civil authorities when they are contrary to the demands of the moral order, to the fundamental rights of persons or the teaching of the gospel. Pretty clear, isn't it? And finally, that third point. Third point, we are to spread the light of the gospel in all areas of civic life. Pope Paul VI, he nailed it. I mean, he really did when he talked about this responsibility that we have to be active and involved in, in civic life. He says this, it is incumbent for all Catholics to freely infuse a Christian spirit into the mentality, the customs, the laws, and the structures of civil life. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Here's the challenge. Now let's bring it to 2020. The challenge for us today is that many Catholics are feeling discouraged and defeated in the civic arena 
because there is a swell of division and polarization that exists in our nation. Wouldn't you agree with that? And once again, the severity, the level to which it is today, the severity of our inability to cooperate as a nation is new territory. It's, it's, this is a new thing for us. This is something that's been growing over the last 30 years. It's just slowly but surely, and now it's just really, you feel it. You really feel that sense of polarization. And it discourages you because we're used to working together, right? Common bond, working together kind of thing. Uh, and so it's hard after you've been in that mire for so long, it's hard to imagine that people can work together again in a cooperative, a compassionate, and a productive way. I think this is so true. Today, many people are more dazzled by the sharp contrast between blue and red than the color purple, which represents the passion of Jesus, which represents the common bond that we share to build a better society, a better world through humility, through servitude, through death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus came in a sense of passion. Now some will say today that this division has passed the point of no return. There's no way that we can go back to where we were. Let me say I totally disagree with that, and here's why. That's like you saying to me that hate is greater than love. Which is more powerful, love or hate? Well, love, love absolutely. Uh, it's like saying that the message of amassing personal power is greater than the gospel of life. Is there any message greater than the message of Jesus? Well, no. What did we hear in, in the Isaiah passage today? I am God, and there's none other like me. Nobody even comes a second. There's no, not even a close second. And so, you know, when we, we feel that sense of that there's no way to restore this, it's sort of like saying that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is totally incompetent, totally incapable of changing hearts that are turned to stone. Let me give you an example that really sets this off. 2015, that's when Pope Francis came to the United States. And uh, you also remember, and hopefully you were watching it, he addressed a joint meeting of Congress. You remember that when he did that? And he speaks to the, the Congress on practicing compassion, being compassionate as political leaders in the civic arena of life. He was so moving that it says that Representative John Bonner was brought to tears. You remember him? You remember John Bonner? Um, after this was all over, this is what the critics said. They said, his crying is a sign of weakness. They said that this was a political ploy to gain better approval ratings. Well, that's one way to look at it. But I believe that God, through the Holy Father, broke into this man's heart and he touched him even to the point of shedding tears. And uh, this man 
one of the most powerful people in the free world today because at that time he was the Speaker of the House in Congress. He, he was moved to tears. His heart was turned to compassion as the Holy Father spoke about civic obligation. So what do you think, Christian? What do you think was going on in that heart? Is God able to move hearts? Ah, yes, absolutely. So remember that as you go about fulfilling your responsibility, civic responsibility, do what Paul VI said, infuse life, its mentality, its customs, its laws, and its structures with a Christian spirit. There you go. Go about your day, not discouraged, but go about believing as we see so many times in the scriptures, there's so many stories of this happening in the scriptures that God and the gospel are capable of making a huge difference in civic life. But nothing can trump God. Nothing can. And most importantly, believe it, but most importantly, go out living it. Live that faith in the presence of other people. Live out your faith in civic life like you mean it, like your faith really means something to you. And if you do, you will begin to see a transformation take place. I'd like to leave you with two thoughts for reflection this evening. How much of your life have you turned over to God who is your maker? How much? 30%, 70%, 50%, 10%, or 100%? How much of God, how much does, of God is in your life? How much have you turned of your life over to him? The second thing is this, and in what one way can you increase your faith, increase your faith that God can truly unify our divided and polarized nation today. God bless all of you.